Welcome back, everyone. I'm Cass Pianci, and I am here as usual with my partner in crime, Bennett Tomlin. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well, Cass. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you. And we also have a special guest, Chief Insights Columnist at Coindesk, David Z. Morris. How are you? Hey, folks. I'm I'm pretty good. How are y'all? Today, we're, we're bringing David on to discuss Enron and what happened at Enron at the time and how that relates to what's going on now in finance and cryptocurrency. Bennett, do, do you, or David for that matter, either, either one of you, do you want to go over exactly what happened at Enron? I think David's the best to take that. Okay, just to get the big picture and then we'll get into sort of some nuts and bolts. But the big picture of Enron is it's the largest corporate fraud uh, in American history. Um, it was an energy trading company basically founded in 1985 by a guy named Ken Lay and was headquartered in Houston for most of its run. At its peak, it, which was in 2000, it had a market cap of about 70 billion. And at that time, you know, that doesn't sound necessarily like a ton these days, but it was the seventh largest publicly traded company in the United States. And then in 2001, Bethany McLean, a journalist at Fortune, where I used to work, published a story called or titled, Is Enron Stock Overpriced? And that was kind of the break in the dam. Um, it seems weirdly mild by contemporary standards. But after that, there was a bunch of questions being asked and too many questions were asked. And by December of 2001, a year after its peak stock valuation, Enron had declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy because what was revealed was that there were a series of shell companies hiding debts off the books. And it was essentially entirely a fraud um, and everybody lost everything and the executives went to jail and or died. That's Enron in a nutshell. I want to also touch on the fact that much of the fraud related to the accounting firm associated with Enron, which was Arthur Anderson, which is no more. They don't exist any longer, largely because of the failures at Enron and Arthur Anderson and because of their failures with WorldCom as well. They had a series of failures at the time. They, they were doing a really bad job. Really bad job of being accountants. Yes, exactly. They played a big role in this. And now let's let's see if we can determine why this is still an important story today and how there could possibly be some parallels to the cryptocurrency markets. Ben, do you want to take a shot at it? Like what what's the what's the point? Why are we talking about this? For me, Enron is such an interesting story for a few different reasons. One, you have them basically trying to do something novel. And like a lot of their value starts to come from the fact that they're doing something that hadn't been seen before. In the case of Enron specifically, they were trying to make financial instruments out of energy, which is a difficult task to do, but they were able to start selling this idea of financializing energy. And because of that, they kept getting more and more interest and investment in effectively that idea. And so there were parallels immediately for me with that to how certain cryptocurrency companies seem to attract investment purely because they're trying something novel. Mm. Like before the business has been validated, before the model is proven out, they're attracting investment because they're doing something new. Then Enron obviously was using some interesting accounting techniques and the way that they were structuring their income through these different subsidiaries, these different groups, and trying to flow it to maintain a certain appearance of growth also seemed remarkable to me. Not to interrupt here. I'm sorry, Bennett. I just want to bring this up again because you're touching on the accounting aspects of this. And I know, I'm sure David will dive into this more, but what you're talking about is mark to market. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a style 
of accounting that it's still used today. It's not like the style itself is uh, illegal, but the way that Enron was doing it, and I'll try to play it now. Enron did a a skit. It was tongue in cheek, but it was a skit saying we can book as many profits as we want to. Well, hey, good Rich, morning. how are you? Finally, we've been working hard on this, and we've really pulled out all the stops. Look what we got: origination. We did twenty million last year. We think we can do one hundred and twenty million dollars this year. This is the key. We're going to move from mark-to-market accounting to something I call HFV, hypothetical future value accounting. Whoa! If we do that, we can add a gazillion dollars to the bottom line. The thing about Enron at its core, and this is mark-to-market is the accounting term for it, but it's just this idea that you're betting on the future, and and not just betting on the future that's in a very definite way, but betting on a future that's always a little bit further away than you think. Mark-to-market is we can sign a contract or otherwise have an agreement for revenues, let's say 10 years from now. And you know anybody with half a brain knows that the energy market 10 years from now is not gonna be the same as it is right now, yet that's how Enron operated. That was one part of the uh, shenanigans going on. The other part was, was about hiding debts off the books, which we'll talk about. But in terms of the big picture, just to zoom back out from mark to market, I think that that future forwardness is one thing. This idea that we're gonna financialize everything and therefore be able to predict the future because we have already put a price on it. Enron really pushed that to the absolute limit, and I wish it had really been like the high watermark from which things receded. But unfortunately, it was really more of a preview of things like the housing crisis. And the other thing that I think is important to take away from Enron is the cultural aspect of it. You know, we think about the regulatory space in finance as this thing where there are lots of walls and lots of cops and lots of careful management. But the Enron story really shows that that is just not the case, that if you are are somebody who thinks they're doing the right thing, you can go pretty far over the line. And that's what's really interesting about Enron is that everybody thought they were within the letter of the law, even though they knew that they were violating the spirit of the law, they thought that everything that they were doing could be defended. The culture there, they uh, would like post the stock price tickers everywhere in the offices. Everybody was obsessed with the stock price. It was very much a, a focus on money above a lot of other things. And I think if you're thinking about things as an investor, that's a red flag that Enron should drive home. I just want to point out that that is something that we see to this day. CZ is a great example of someone who consistently speaks about the price of of the coin that he started. Probably there's other exchange owners that do the exact same thing. I just can't think of them off the top of my head. Well, you know, Justin Sun was notorious for this back in the day, constantly tweeting about the price of Tron, which I haven't looked, but I'm guessing he doesn't do it as much lately because it's not such good news. But another sterling example of the correlation between uh, shenanigans and price obsession. And it also isn't just, I wouldn't suggest it's only in cryptocurrency because we see similar antics go on. I mean, we've seen meme meme stocks gain a real foothold in the financial system. It altered the board of directors for something like GameStop. I mean, now Ryan Cohen is really in control over there. And I would suggest that that's largely a consequence of stock price. And this is where we get into really sort of almost philosophical questions about what constitutes fraud. You know, to uh, take a, a quote from the documentary that was made out of the book, Smartest Guys in the Room, about Enron, 
there's a talking head in the movie, I forget exactly who, but um, they were commenting on Skilling's mindset at the time. It was a person who I think knew him. And they said, as long as you can keep the illusion going, it really isn't a fraud. And what that means, if you unpack it, is even if you know that you're not telling the truth in the moment, if you're a person who believes that you're on like a world-changing mission, you can convince yourself that those lies are not only justified in terms of long-term results, but are actually helping create those long-term results by propping up the illusion. So if somebody thinks that the hype actually is the product, this is where you end up. That brings up something very important that I think Bennett will know exactly what I'm talking about right now. Sometime in 2017, 2018, I remember Ari David Paul suggesting that if you bootstrap fraud, it is no longer fraud. I have I have a big problem with that. It isn't how I think investment should be done. And I don't think that the law reflects on that as being true necessarily. Knowing Ari, I would be tempted to give him the benefit of the doubt that he was engaged in a kind of devil's advocate thought experiment there. Because the thing is, unfortunately, that might not be the way things are supposed to work. But in some cases, it does seem increasingly that it's the way they work out. It's almost built into the startup mindset, right, to a certain extent, that some bets are going to be for things that we're going to try and do. By definition, if you're investing in a startup that has a proposal, it might not work. And at that point, you start getting increasingly loosey-goosey in a loose money environment, frankly, as far as you know what an actual plan is. I just wrote a column today about uh, bullish the new proposed exchange by uh, Peter Thiel and the Block One guys, which is trying to go public before it's operational at a $9 billion valuation. Is that fraud? I don't think that's the right word for it, but it, it certainly is operating on a future forward basis that is not about reality at the present moment. You know, to be clear, the Enron situation was not that subtle or complicated. It was outright fraud. But when you're in a startup environment where the future is what you're trading on, then you can definitely bullshit your way pretty far. And I think we've seen that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the example I thought of wasn't the one Cass cited. I was actually thinking of Tesla and some of Elon Musk's promise, like where he thought he was going to have a self-driving car drive from New York to L.A. by the end of 2017. And he was yeah. able to fundraise basically on the back of that expectation. And it was during a period when Tesla didn't have a lot of free cash sitting around. Yeah. And so, in effect, he made this kind of very future-focused statement. Because of that, was able to keep the business going and presumably at some point in the future, he may actually achieve the goal. But it's the same kind of thing where you you need to keep the expectation going, the illusion going for as long as possible, that the future that all your current values drive from is still just around the corner. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously, the other contrasting maybe example would be Theranos, which, you know, they actively pretended that they had a working thing when they didn't, which actually maybe that's a that's a useful distinction, right? Where if you're saying we're going to do this by X date and then it doesn't happen, that's where there's a clear bright line between that and saying, yes, this thing works right now and we're going to sell it to you tomorrow and, and lying about that. So um, maybe, maybe that's one way to make the distinction in terms of hope versus actual deception. <laughs> Another thing that I think is very poignant and related to the cryptocurrency space in particular, especially right now with uh, so much going on about Binance, is that when I was listening to, there was a podcast I listened to, FBI Retired Case File Review, and it featured 
someone named Michael E. Anderson, the FBI agent in charge in charge of the Enron case file. One of the really interesting things that he discusses is is twofold. One, that the FBI was not really looking into Enron at all until the collapse happened already. It was mm-hmm. not something they thought necessarily in any way, shape, or form was fraud. Now, here's the second part that I thought was very fascinating, and that is that it wasn't only the FBI that was looking into Enron. It was the SEC. It was mm-hmm. the SDNY. It was the Houston jurisdiction. It was the uh, Northern District of California. Like everyone wanted to claim jurisdictional rights over Enron. They all wanted to prosecute the seventh largest company in the United States. <laughs> they all wanted to stake their their flag as the ones who who really nailed this home. But this was all, I think, after the whistleblower came forward. Of course, of course, yeah, uh, Sharon Watkins and. So it's not like they were really on the watch. Not, no, 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 uh, not at all. But they all wanted a piece of it. So I think about that and I go, man. I wonder how the jurisdictional issues are going to play out in cryptocurrency because it still feels like they don't have any idea who and what and when prosecutes who and what and why. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question, but I, I think that it, it'll work itself out. I don't think it's going to be an insoluble situation. It's it's all going to be about, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of extradition going on, I'll say that. But the fraud element, because I think from an accounting perspective, which is one of your, your primary interests, it's, it is worth going into the kind of guts, right? Yeah, and TM, TMJ or whatever, or TJM or whatever it was called. Uh, LJM, but it gave people TMJ, I'm sure. So just very, very broadly, the trick that Enron, learned how to do I guess the first thing to be aware of is that like they're really bad at their actual business so they would uh, invest unreasonable amounts of money into unprofitable energy plants in India and they could not bill their actual customers effectively uh, Enron at one point was spending I think it was 50 million a year in float on payments that they were owed by their own customers because they couldn't bill them in a timely manner. So so in order to create a continually upward pointed profit curve, they figured out how to do uh, basically some hiding of debt and they would create spinoff companies that would buy Enron assets that were underperforming to take them off the books. And then, you know, that would allow them to book other kinds of revenue as well. They did all kinds of moving on and off book. And when we talk about the the overt fraud part of this, you know, it's obviously perfectly legitimate for an organization to create a, a spinoff company or a shell company for financial reasons. There are lots of different purposes that those can have. But in this case, they were supposedly um, independent entities for accounting purposes. And in order to qualify for accounting purposes as an independent entity, you had to have um, and this is hilarious in itself, but you had to have three percent outside equity if you were doing a spinoff from an existing company. Now, that's nominally because you want to have some sort of due diligence from a third party that actually sets the price of the deal in some kind of reasonable way. Obviously, you know, whether 3% actually accomplishes that goal, it's hard to say. But what Enron ultimately wound up having to do because they were unloading such bad assets was to A, use a lot of people who were actually within the Enron organization as the quote unquote outside investors on those uh, 3% shares of these spinoff corporations that were designed to hold debt. Um, And B, they also often either implicitly or explicitly 
gave outside investors, uh, which did include major investment banks, they gave outside investors um, guarantees of the safety of their investment in these entities, which effectively made the investments loans. So those are the two clear, um, I mean, they're not the only clear ways, but they're two big clear accounting fraud practices that were going on. I need to push back on this a little bit because I, I do think that it's easy to assume that people just will understand a lot of this. And really, accounting fraud is like incredibly complex. And what they were doing, oh, for sure. what they were doing at Enron, you know, it took uh, even the FBI like four years to unravel exactly what the hell was happening inside this company. I just think it's hard to really understand how it was fraud. They're moving money. They're cooking the books. They're... Uh, moving liabilities to assets. There's mark to market. There's all there's all these things. But how is it fraud? Yeah, well, I think maybe maybe what you're getting at is it's definitely true. All of this is after the fact discovered. I mean, this was certainly not public information at the time. This is what's really um, amazing about the, the Bethany McLean piece in 2001 that kind of led things to unravel is that it's super mild. There is no allegation of fraud. There, she at the time had no sense that there was fraud. The headline is just, is Enron stock overvalued, right? And that was enough. Just breathe hard on it, and the house of cards comes falling over. And I think it also actually, uh, in some ways, it's an optimistic take because I think the the financial press has gotten way more aggressive over the last 20 years for the better, so for what that's worth. But the thing from the – trying to look at it from the outside and see fraud, like that, it's a super important question. And I think that the, the biggest and clearest sign from Enron – was that, you know, I don't know the specific number, but they had something like four or five years, if not more, of 100% every single quarter, they made their numbers, um, both internally and externally. They had profits that went up every single quarter. There was never a disappointing quarter. Really, like, that's, that's such a huge signal. And it's such a hard signal to really hear for somebody who is looking for an investment, for example. Because if you look at something where you're just like, they do nothing but win, well, how? Ask yourself that. And I think in this case, it's, you know, in retrospect, they were just pulling all this stuff in and out. But from the outside, you know, if you have a business that never has a disappointing quarter, that never misses, then that's actually something to take as a potential negative. It's not always a positive because you don't know what's going on behind the doors. Last time we talked, you told us a story about this where you detailed the California pension and how they ended up invested in Enron. And I thought that was a good example of the kind of practices they were using to keep this thing afloat. Could you walk us through that, David? Yeah, well, for, first of all, uh, the jig is up. Yes, we're re-recording this because I forgot to hit record last time. Yeah, so so what you're talking about is a thing called, well, kind of two things. One called Jedi and one called Chuko. And these were early in the lineage of the spinoff debt-hiding structures that Enron had engaged in to try and juice its numbers. So CalPERS is the big California Public Employees Retirement Fund. And in the early 90s, Enron had gotten them into a joint venture called JEDI that was an investment fund. Like the later versions, it invested in some Enron assets. It it did some other things as well. But by uh, 1997, JEDI had kind of made all of its investments and Enron was looking to do another outside entity. And uh, the next one was called Chuco. The hitch was they wanted to get CalPERS involved again. 
But CalPERS had not yet managed to sell all of its stake in Jedi, the original um, investment fund. And as I mentioned, and I know it's all very fast and very complicated, but uh, Enron needed an outside investor so that it could create this separate entity that would then absorb debt that would hide uh, stuff that it didn't want to be seen on its quarterly statements. But in order to get CalPERS to join this next round with Chuco, um, it had to get it out of its get CalPERS out of its position in, in the other entity called Jedi. So Enron actually went and tried to find somebody to buy. CalPERS stake in this investment fund, it had discussed a, uh, a price with the fund that, that, that would be acceptable to entice them to get into the, the next round. It couldn't find any takers at the price that CalPERS needed to make that uh, next investment happen. So Enron itself actually wound up buying back the entire stake in Jedi at what worked out for CalPERS to a 22% annual return, which is pretty good. So this is, I think, another example. I'm not going to be able to break down the exact nuances, but you kind of begin to get a sense of some of the issues because Enron is buying back assets that were mostly its own at a price that it is setting to please one of its investors. And of course, that ultimately costs shareholders money because you have executives setting prices for their own projects. So you have this 22% return that CalPERS gets. It joins into this thing called Chuco. And Chuco is interesting because you get an example of some of the other levels of self-dealing that are going on within this organization. So Chuco, for example, Enron, when it creates Chuco, which is, again, an off-balance sheet entity for hiding debt, in the process of doing that, it also charges Chuco $10 million in a structuring fee that becomes revenue for Enron. It also ends up making individuals within Enron stupid rich because people who invested their personal money into these things also got guaranteed returns, illegal. And this one guy, uh, Michael Copper, who was involved in Chuco, got $500,000 a year to manage an off-balance sheet entity while also keeping his job at Enron, which I don't think he was, I think he was probably paid about as much for. And as time goes on, more and more Enron employees are either investing in or getting management fees on a personal basis from these spinoff entities. People are just treating it as a piggy bank. They're getting all these fees, all these, uh, all these management fees and all these insane investment returns. I mean, people made millions of dollars on their illegal personal investments in these spinoff entities. To go a little bit off of that into the landscape, the affiliates who sometimes wound up making these investments were part of a group called Friends of Enron. So this was a semi-formal list that the company kept of wealthy affiliate, affiliated individuals who could be counted on to inject capital into these off-balance sheet books. Uh, they included people like friends of Andy Fastow's wife, the, the CFO, um, and a realtor who had sold houses to a lot of Enron employees. This is essentially Hawala, is what you're talking about. I'm not sure I'm familiar. What's Hawala? Uh, Hawala is like, it's an informal method of moving money that is, I, I think it's largely practiced in the Middle East. I might be wrong about that. Oh, I don't know. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not super familiar. I do know that system has worked for a long time. I'm not I'm not really familiar with the parallels here, but um it literally translates to trust. And uh what you're what you're talking about is basically trusted sources within the family that you're using to move money around. Yeah, and and meanwhile, you know, they're kind of putting up capital that allows you to skirt certain formal regulations and in exchange you're guaranteeing that they're going to make an exorbitant amount of money off of their smallish 
shares. So, and you know, that's one part of the the operation. I think that uh, you guys might be more familiar with the other big fraud, of course, is the California energy trading scandal. My throat's getting dry. I don't know if one of you guys wants to take a shot at that one. I mean, I am a Californian, so I can take a shot at that. I remember it distinctly because what ended up happening, not to spoil the story here, but our governor ended up being recalled. And our governor was, when he was elected, he was wildly popular. His name was Gray Davis. And what ended up happening that year, and I I will never forget this because those blackouts affected literally everybody. It is not something anyone in California at the time will tell you they weren't affected by. I was affected by it. My family was affected by it. So yeah, what, what Enron basically did is they started controlling in some sense of the word the power grid for California and what they purposely did was stop giving them electricity and they would do that by just upping the price upping the price until people couldn't afford it or whatever It, it became this very crazy combination of the traders making money off of Californians not having electricity but also the traders being in control of whether or not those Californians had electricity. So we had rolling blackouts throughout the Mm -hmm. state. They called them rolling blackouts. And they would just, oh, sorry, today there's going to be six hours without electricity. I mean, it was literally like living in a third world country, as we used to call it. Yeah. And I think people even died. I mean, there were like, uh, you know, hospitals obviously were faced with the same situation. Yep. And at the end of this, Gray Davis got recalled and Arnold Schwarzenegger became our new governor. So that that's the, the long story short there. I, I remember from watching the documentary, they had this audio clip from two of the traders who were discussing the energy situation in California. One of the traders goes, yeah, I can steal one to two. And the other trader interrupts and goes, not steal. And the first trader goes back and he goes, oh, yeah, I can arbitrage one to two million a day off the California energy market. Right, right. Enron's a striking example of like these traders whose entire job is to be solely focused on making as much money as humanly possible, being in charge of making decisions that should perhaps not be exclusively motivated by making as much money as humanly possible. And and to sort of roll that back to the broader context, right, it's important to understand um, why this happened at this particular moment, because Enron was founded in 1985 on a kind of long-term regulatory bet that the energy markets would become deregulated, that the concept of trading would become a sustainable business. Um, but by the early to mid-90s, they were really starting to run up against some some hard walls because of the exact thing that Bennett just said, which is people basically understand that energy is essential to modern life and maybe you should just make it boring. But California, by uh, by... I think this was, uh, was this like 98, 99? But they had, they had decided they were going to go ahead with deregulating electricity markets. And they had actually designed their market system with a lot of participation from Enron. And so surprise, surprise, it worked out in a way that the traders were able to make money. And one of the, you know, Cass, you mentioned like they were raising the price and they were raising the price in a really like crazy way, which is they would actually, uh, well, there were two things kind of happening and one was just nakedly illegal, but the trading side was they would actually export energy to nearby states. So Nevada or Oregon. And, you know, 
I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this would have been sort of a nominal exportation. They weren't actually moving the energy. They were just selling blocks of energy to outside customers. And by doing so, they then constrained the supply within California. And then they would then re-import in a matter of hours or even less, re-quote unquote, re-import that energy to California that they had sold out of state, despite knowing that the demand would be higher. So this is just a trading maneuver. They were able, because of the way the market was designed, to arbitrage. But in fact, that resulted in just raising people's rates um, and essentially stealing. I mean, there were a lot of, uh, I think Enron made $9 billion from California utility customers in the space of about a year and a half, which is criminal, <laughs> criminal on its face, right? The other way that they raised the prices, though, uh, which, you know, maybe you guys can enlighten me a little bit here because I, I, I maybe missed a step, but it sounded like they really just had inside relationships with the operators of power plants who they could call up on queue and have them just shut down for maintenance. Um, so, I mean, that was one of the really overt parts of the fraud. Although I will say that it didn't seem like those operators were necessarily, from what I could tell, it didn't seem like those operators were necessarily like in on the take. You know, it's not like they were making money off of it. They weren't participating it other than to think like, okay, we're going down for maintenance. Like, I'm not sure they fully understood what was going on and that, that they were yeah. a part of the fraud. I, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. I have no idea. Just one other thing that I, I want to ask you about, and I'm going to pretty much hand over the reins to Bennett for any other questions, but this was the seventh largest company in the U.S. It's in the energy sector, which you would hope would be regulated to a, a large extent. And it's on the NYSE. So you also hope that would be largely regulated. It ended up being the largest fraud in corporate history. It happened at the exact same time as WorldCom, which was one of the largest corporate frauds in U.S. history. We're dealing with markets that are far more opaque when it comes to cryptocurrency. I just think they have zero incentive to follow any of the regulations that Enron was supposed to be following. Enron ended up blowing up. I'm just wondering if you see decentralization and cryptocurrency in general as as being a space where that's going to be a problem or if maybe the that the direction of cryptocurrency will end up being a net positive. It's interesting because it it really forces you to to think about your first principles and cuz I'm you know I'm I'm a relatively pro-regulation guy. I believe that regulation can can do things when it's, you know, focused on particular people who are bad actors and particular actions. I am not a fan of restrictions on choices that people can make. But after the fact, you need enforcement and you need some kind of monitoring, especially of large organizations. At the same time, I think the thing that Enron really drives home and especially for crypto investors, I would almost say it's not about like regulation literally doesn't matter in the cryptocurrency space to a huge degree when you're talking about entities like Binance or, or BitMEX. And in that kind of space, I think what Enron drives home is that it really becomes about character and what is your evaluation of the people who are in charge. And one of the things that's really notable about Ken Lay, who is the, the founder and CEO, is that he had somewhat of a folksy image, but he also was a gambler and uh, loved risk and talked about risk as a, as a positive. So, you know, that's, again, one of those signals where are people encouraging risky behavior of, in their customers? Are they encouraging risky behavior among their employees? And what do you take away from that? It's It's almost like you have to be if not the regulator, at least the skeptic. And I think that one of the real truths is that there are people in crypto who 
I think you can trust, who I trust. It's hard to know who those people are if you're not super engaged in the market. And maybe that's the takeaway for a lot of people is you can't read a white paper. You can't hope that a regulator is going to do anything to protect you. You have to actually learn the landscape if you want to be engaged in a way that is risk controlled. Regulators, especially in the United States, are not cops on the beat, really across any industry at this point. And so if you're expecting that, it's always going to be disappointing for you. One thing I do want to touch on is you talked about how Enron was founded as kind of a bet that in the future energy markets would be deregulated and that would thus benefit Enron. But I think one of the important things is that Enron didn't just make that bet. They took active steps to try and ensure the right people were in power to make that happen. Do you have any thoughts on the relationship between the Bush family and Enron? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's, I'm sure, miles of deep, dark stuff there. But I think my the thing that I take away is actually how amazing it is that this actually happened with Ken Lay's good buddy, George W. Bush, in the White House. They actually got criminally prosecuted. People went to jail. And that was despite Lay having, I mean, as the stuff was unfolding, he was calling Alan Greenspan talking about how Enron was systemically risky. And, you know, to their credit, nobody bailed them out. And you know what? Everything was fine. Every, there, California has electricity now, despite Enron going bankrupt. And, you know, I think that um, that's, a, that's a major takeaway because the same thing, I think, would have been the case, let's say, in 2008, if the financial system had been treated a little bit less, uh, with less of a velvet touch, let's say. Maybe there was so much anger afterwards that um, they were kind of taken aback. I mean, I, how, I don't know how many employees worked for Enron at, at its peak, but we're we're talking about at least twenty or thirty thousand people, I think, losing their jobs. And about the loss of their in the in the documentary, they talked to a gentleman in Portland, which has absolutely nothing to do with Houston, Texas, and Enron, who lost most of his life life savings because he invested in in Enron because he was told to. Yeah. Well, he was a, uh, I think he was like a, an employee, that particular guy was an employee of, the, of a subsidiary, and a lot of Enron employees had their 401ks heavily invested in Enron stock. So not only did they lose their jobs, in most cases, they lost a huge chunk, if not all, of their retirement savings. And there are videos that are shown of Enron executives encouraging employees to invest 100% of their 401ks into Enron stock, which again, if we're talking about like red flags, like this is one that makes my mind melt because on the one hand, yes, if you're a company, you want to convey that confidence, but it's the kind of thing that seems insane if you know anything at all about finance and you hear somebody say, put your entire 401k in one stock. We have this term in crypto, right? Like hopium, where people are just high on their own supply. And I think that's a, that was a big moment. If I was looking at that moment of Enron, I would be like, who in that position is not going to be like, well, we think we're doing really great, but you should maybe diversify your portfolio. Like, just throw it out there. Just say it once. Not to draw too many parallels here. Michael Saylor just had that video come out recently where he's yelling, telling people, mortgage your house, invest in Bitcoin, get rid of the business that you've had for 25 years and put that money into Bitcoin. If you have a mortgage already, get another mortgage. And if if you if you have a car, sell your car. And, and he's telling people to do everything, take all of their assets, get rid of them and buy Bitcoin. And like you're talking about, if that isn't a red flag, uh, I don't know what is. Yeah, I mean, that's very disappointing to hear. I haven't seen that video. I mean, Sailor is in a particular position because 
I mean, he's hitched the stock of his publicly traded company to the value of Bitcoin. That's not necessarily 100% coming from his faith in the asset. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I was actually going to, I was about to describe the exact same scenario and how that gave me a similar feeling to watching the documentary because it's these people who are supposed to be responsible and who you expect to trust giving this advice that is extraordinarily dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Recommending someone go into debt to purchase a hundred volatility asset is absurd. Yeah, I mean, absurd and irresponsible. And I don't know, this is where we get into the big questions, right? Which is what? What's happening? You know, what's happening in these markets? What's happening in reality? I mean, we this is a bigger topic, but we've already seen a pretty significant blip and downturn in Bitcoin. And there's a lot of talk about a broader correction. And, and all of these things, when a correction does come, are, are going to be on the table for discussion. Because, yeah, I mean, you have to be a responsible investor. And uh, no one thing is a responsible investment by itself, no matter how you feel about Bitcoin or anything else. Enron included, but none of these frauds, uh, whether it's WorldCom, Enron, uh, Madoff is another great example. It takes the bubble popping. So for Enron and WorldCom, it was the telecom bubble and the uh, internet bubble popping. And I just wonder if a lot of these cryptocurrency companies, and for that matter, like you're saying, traditional finance, other stuff, if what they need to be exposed is simply a market correction. And that's when you have regulators come out in swarms and start being like, oh, I see a lot of problems here. You know, it's not necessarily like just to be clear, the correction doesn't necessarily result in in regulators suddenly like strapping on the armor and going out to do their digging. I mean, the correction exposes the structural flaws of the schemes that are happening. So with Enron, and this is actually really important with a lot of these off book entities, the reason they were able to absorb all of this debt that was supposed to be on Enron's actual accounting books is because they were hedged against Enron's own stock, um, which which just like ups the ante for the insanity, by the way, because it's like, here, buy our bad assets, give us cash. And if anything goes wrong, you can have our stock, which, by the way, is going to be collapsing in value if anything goes wrong. So that's exactly what happened. And as soon as Enron stock started going down, a lot of these off-book entities were basically forced to unwind or, you know, I mean, in essence, it's a margin call, right? You're, um, you are you have a bet that goes wrong and you're f But, you know, that's what happens. And, and that's why, you know, Madoff was able to keep going until he couldn't. What's the Buffett quote? Anybody can remember it off the top of their head? Uh, you, no one knows you're swimming naked until the tide goes out. Right, exactly. That's the other, you know, big lesson here for everybody. I mean, we've been in a bull market for everything for two and a half years and arguably for 10 years. So uh, the water hasn't gone out in a while. If anything, crypto has the advantage of having had a major, major chill in, you know, 2018, 2019, when people were really starving. But of course, it, it's not that hard to set up a fresh scam. So it's not like you need a lot of lead time. Uh, when you were telling that specific story, I was reminded of specifically the collateralizing with the stock and like that being treated as making the deal okay, reminded me of the revolving credit agreement that was negotiated between Bitfinex and Tether in March of 2019, because they described it as a secured loan, but it was secured by shares of iFinex, which was one of the companies obviously that runs the Bitfinex platform. And so in the case where Bitfinex had not gotten access to this loan facility or where they in the future needed to heavily draw upon it, those stocks end up not being valued enough to actually cover the value of the loan. 
Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's a it's an exact parallel. Yes. And so that was just a very striking thing to me. And it's the same way like with Paolo being one of the directors of Dell Chain, obviously being an offshoot of Dell Tech, and then also still being CTO at Bitfinex and Tether. That just strikes in my head as remarkably similar to the Enron executives. Well, and the thing that we don't know, or, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about this. The thing that we don't know um, in some of the um, Tether attestations is this this question of related entities as the commercial paper that they're holding. You know, I went through the, the Truco thing where you have Enron setting its own price for assets that it's buying back from an outside, quote unquote, outside entity that's not really an outside entity. And so you can at least hypothetically imagine a similar situation where, um, you know, Tether or any other stable coin, who knows, this is hypothetical, can say this commercial paper from our good friends over at this exchange that we don't have a formal relationship with is worth X. And that's what's backing our asset. It does ultimately become about bubbles and their deflation because you can say that and you're safe until somebody actually asks to see the receipts. Yeah, we're right back to the as long as you can continue the illusion, as long as you keep convincing people that this is going to exist into the future and be valuable in the future, you can sustain the fraud itself. And so I think that's a really good parallel. And a good example of how, without transparency into how a business is valuing its assets and its lines of business, it can be easy to get taken in by the mm-hmm. narrative they construct around it. Simplicity itself. I mean, it's just made up. <laughs> there's there's nothing to stop them from doing it, ultimately. The illusion versus character is where I end up. I don't know. If, I mean, what do you guys think? Like, in this space, maybe, I don't know if you're total uh, skeptics, but, like, are there, what are, what are your metrics for trying to figure out if something is legit or not? I can tell you that I like to look into the corporate structure. So I like to see how transparent the corporate structure is, who they're registered with. I like to know who the executive leadership is. I think the executive leadership is actually quite telling. What we've been talking about here at Enron, Jeff Jeffrey Skilling was tantamount to everything, all of the moral and ethical issues at Enron. Jeffrey Skilling was all of that. And then you have Ken Lay, who was like endorsing all of that. And then you have Andy Fastow, who was like, I'm just following orders. The entire executive leadership there was perfect for fraud. And so I think that's very important. Bennett, what what other kind of metrics are good for this? Well, I think one of the things that can be valuable in the cryptocurrency space is I generally tend to have more trust for the companies that have been around for a while, because that means they've been able to survive couple major drawdowns at this point. So they weren't like so structurally insolvent or whatever that the drawdown exposed their problems. And I think the vast majority of cryptocurrency businesses have had issues at some point at this point. So often seeing how they responded to those can be telling. And so uh, the ones who are honest and forthright or will detail what went wrong and what they had to do to fix it are generally going to garner more trust from me than other ones. Yeah, it's really unfortunate that the largest crypto company, Coinbase, is actually a pretty bad actor in terms of transparency, but that's a topic for another day. So are there any parting words that you would like to leave us with or any issues or concerns or just contemplations in regard to Enron? I don't think I have anything extra to add about Enron specifically, but but I will say because I think we touched on it and it bears repeating that, you know, there's a lot of scary stuff out there. And there are another Warren Buffett quote. I mean, I I hate 
it's so trite, but it's, it's so true, which is be fearful when others are greedy, be, be greedy when others are fearful. And right now, people are greedy, and that makes me fearful. <laughs> so, I mean, that would be maybe the, the last thing I would say, because people at Enron were very greedy, and it ended where it ended. And we're, we're in an era where there's a lot of greed to go around, and it's going to end eventually, somehow. Thank you very much for coming on, David. Uh, everyone, make sure you check out David's book, Bitcoin is Magic, Internet Money, oh, yes, Mimetic you. Warfare, and the End of Mere Reality. And I enjoyed talking about Enron today. Awesome. And I'm on Twitter at just at David Z. Morris. So that's going to do it for our conversation on Enron with David Morris. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to that as much as we enjoyed discussing it. I'm looking forward to a couple other interviews that we're releasing this week. It's going to be a really busy week for us. Next, we're having Rohan Gray. And after that, we're going to be doing an interview with Preston Byrne, diametrically opposed to one another, completely different, and yet both uh, appearing on our show. So I'm very, very excited about this. And I hope you guys join us next time. Thanks. Thanks.